You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. All right, I want to take us to 1969, the summer of 1969, the summer that we went to the moon. That's one small step for man. The last summer of a truly historic decade. And the summer that saw a really big, groundbreaking music festival in New York. Cars are being abandoned on highways leading to the resort area. I know the festival you are thinking of right now, and it's not that one. This music festival did not take place upstate, and it wasn't just a few days. This one happened in Harlem, summer of 69, every weekend for almost two months. Back then, it was called the Harlem Cultural Festival. Welcome to the Harlem Cultural Festival here in Park in the heart of Harlem. But now, Questlove calls it the Summer of Soul. Here we go again. Okay, hear me when I say this. The Harlem Cultural Festival had everything. Stevie Wonder playing the drums like he had three sets of arms. Mavis Staples and Mahalia Jackson singing a duet together with Jesse Jackson's band backing them up. Nina Simone bringing the house down, almost issuing a call to arms for black people. Are you ready to call the wrath of black gods? The whole thing was epic. Questlove made a documentary about the festival called Summer of Soul. It came out on Hulu last year, and now Questlove is out with the soundtrack to this movie, which is just as incredible. We're going to talk about all of that in this chat, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about why so many Americans, before this doc, had no idea one of the greatest music festivals of the past century ever happened. I am so excited for this one. Here's Questlove. Talking Summer of Soul. Enjoy. So I want to talk a lot about how no one really knew that this whole thing happened for a very long time. But I think first we have to place this cultural festival in time. Mm -hmm. So it happened at a very particular time, 1969, this transition from the 60s to the 70s and all that entailed. And it also was this moment of big shift and black consciousness as well, right? Like, I mean, the film talks about this moment in which there was a move from Negro to black. A lot of things were changing in terms of what it meant to think of yourself as black, correct? Yeah. Um, so I would actually say that um, this is a, a, a pivotal moment in time in which everything is changing. One could say that this could be, 69 could be the end of the civil rights chapter as we know it, even though a lot of the issues that went unaddressed would still be here 50 years later. However, you're seeing a moment in time in which once, you know, Martin Luther King, when he's assassinated... Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. And all of America's inner cities are in turmoil, rioting, Cities burning, protesting, anger in the nation. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King. And that feeling of basically hopelessness. So in the case of this film, this festival was allowed 
to happen because there was concern in New York City on whether or not it would be another hot summer of civil unrest. And this clearly shows you the dividing line. Is it is it the Martin Luther King patience approach or is it the Black Panthers uh, fist on a desk now? Not now, but right now approach. And um, as a result, I'll, I'll probably say that in the festival, no moment captures it better than when an unplanned, unannounced Sly and the Family Stone takes the stage. Ladies and gentlemen. With camera four, which is the audience camera. That really tells the story. So when Tony Lawrence, the festival organizer, does this uh, long built-up announcement and says Sly and the Family Stone and they walk on stage. If you look at anyone that seems to be over the age of 25, it's the absolute of horror in their face like like aliens really? just went on stage. People younger are losing their mind. So it's almost like if I were at a Jeffrey Osborne concert and then suddenly the announcer's like, wait, wait, that's not all, ladies and gentlemen. We have Megan the Stallion here too. And then like <laughs> anyone younger is like losing their mind and the adults are like, wait, wait, I, I came for Jeffrey Osborne. What's happening? And yeah. It's only because Sly, first of all, you know, they, they had never seen an intersectional group before where women are playing major roles, not just tambourine. Well, there was a woman playing the trumpet. The, like, guy playing the drums was white. It was a whole Yeah, like, they weren't used to white and black people together. They weren't yeah. used to women playing trumpets. Yeah. They weren't used to seeing people in their street clothes. Like, that alone... I didn't realize like how radical they looked with their, you know, Haight Ashbury boots on and their fringes and their wild afros and you know, I thought that was just normal everyday hippie stuff. Sly and the Family Stone just came off as aliens. And so I'll say maybe for the first two or three songs, the adults in the room we're sort of like, mm, I don't know. This might be some kid stuff. And then midway through, the, like after the third or fourth song, Sly instantly turned on the charm. So yeah, this this film is about how, you know, what we term as black people, what we term as black joy. This is where that sort of the impetus, the seed is is grown there. And yeah. um, you know, at the time Harlem. USA was sort of the capital of black America. Well, and like you can see even in the different performances that not division, but classification. You had some folks that were playing the same festival that came out of the Motown school. They were polished. They were yes. wearing suit and tie. <laughs> and then you juxtapose that with Sly and their look, which would kind of like take blackness into the 70s yes but both sides got along splendidly and it seems like in spite of the differences between the performers there was a unity there for the whole thing uh that seems uncommon especially knowing the other festivals during that time usually devolved into some kind of chaos <laughs> yeah to your point to show you how the status quo was a guy like david ruffin mm -hmm. 
I'd like to go back to the olden days. Would rather rock a wool tuxedo in the middle of August. You know, much to the detriment of his own comfort. Uh, you know, in the name of professionalism. But I, I will say that um, probably, yeah, it, for me, I was wondering, like, I think the idea of diversity is what we're dealing with now. Like, if you take a, a festival like Coachella, I think their idea of diversity is sort of like, okay, let's pick that one or two acts from like 25 years ago. Like, okay, we'll have Lauren Hill or Outkast. But even then, it's like when they choose the diversity artist, it's someone that sold millions that was very popular. But back then, I was really, really shocked at how open the audience was. And, you know, for an example, when, when you see uh, an act like Ray Barreto, I could tell even then, even he had just minor trepidation because even his act was draped in I Come in Peace. <laughs> They were definitely there to let you know, like, Spanish Harlem is a part of this community, too. And, you know, we might not socialize in our everyday life, but, you know, I'm here to let you know that we have the same struggles as you do. And you clearly see that happening as well. Like, they were open to everything. But in every face, in every face I see, I see a part of you and a part of me together. Well, and that's what was so beautiful to see. You know, this festival is happening in 1969. Mm -hmm. Woodstock is a few weeks later. And people forget every Woodstock, even the first one, was kind of a mess. But then you look at this festival, there's no drama, there's no right. fighting, there's no violence, there's no mud. And, like, in many ways you would expect it to not go down that well. Like, the Black Panthers were doing security for this event, you right. know? Like, it was happening in a period of social unrest. What made this festival work so well and be so kumbaya in you this know, moment? I was going to say that um, Woodstock the movie did more for Woodstock and did more for defining a generation than Woodstock the actual event. Woodstock the movie was a perfectly edited three-hour event of a 72-hour event that was really marred with a lot of problems, with weather conditions, with uh, hygiene conditions, with drugs, people bum-rushing the gate. You know, there were a lot of rests. There was ODing, like... They had to airdrop know. food and water by the end of it, right? It got that Yes, bad. exactly. Like, aesthetically, what made Woodstock a success was the film. I, I always say that if one of the things that happened at Woodstock had one of those things occurred at the Harlem Cultural Festival, then you would have probably heard about the Harlem Cultural Festival. On the other hand, uh, this got absolutely no, barely any press. Even when the film was presented to me, I wasn't truly convinced that it happened in the first place. And really? You know, I had to call a lot of people and ask them, and have you heard of it? And those people didn't hear about it. And if you Google, so you it, didn't think it was true at first. I come on, man! You trying to tell me that three hundred thousand people <laughs> gathered in one place and I can't find one photo on the internet? That's crazy. And the thing is, is that they 
actually, you know, come to find out that there was one local station in Buffalo that purchased an hour of the concert and they showed it at like midnight on a Sunday when in which no one's seen it. Yeah. So when I speak of like black erasure, I'm talking more or less from the standpoint of how easily dismissible this particular event was. And so to for me, it was important mm-hmm. to really, really show an aspect of our story as black people that you rarely, rarely, rarely get to see, which is black joy, you know? Coming up, we break down that unforgettable performance from The Fifth Dimension. I want to talk about some of the performances uh, from the film and in the soundtrack. Um, I've got two that I really want to dig into, and you can tell me which one you want to go through first. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fifth Dimension performance, which makes me cry every time I see it, or... Mahalia and Mavis singing Precious Lord Take My Hand together with Jesse Jackson's band backing them up. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, it was, it's absolutely. So, okay, in the case of The Fifth Dimension, um, of all the acts on the Summer Soul Festival, the most popular act in terms of chart positioning uh, was indeed The Fifth Dimension. So big, in fact, that they were more or less seen as a pop group than they were seen as a soul group. And um, their hit, which we should say, uh, it was at number one around the time of their performance, right? Yeah, so uh, at the time, The Age of Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, was number one in the country at the time when they were performing it. When the moon is in the seventh house And Jupiter with And so it was important for the fifth dimension to do this concert because they felt as though, you know, they were rarely offered a chance. Well, first of all, to get an audience of this magnitude, of this size, really wasn't heard of back in the day. If you are an artist performing, you know, your your highest best bet is to do uh, the top tier of the Chitlin circuit. And that means the Uptown in Philly, the Apollo in Harlem, the Regal in Chicago, you know, the Howard in D.C. Those theaters were seen as sort of the high watermark. And so as a result, um, for the fifth dimension, when we let them see the footage, especially with Marilyn McCoo, it touched her in a way that I instantly recognized. showed me that even when black people are on an entertainment platform and at the top of their game, they still have to code switch. I felt familiar with that because, you know, in my years of touring, one day I'd be with the Beastie Boys and we'd have to change our show. And the next day we're with a tribe called Quest and we have to change our show. And the next day we're with Rage Against the Machine and we have to change our show. And the next day, we're with Erica Badu, and we have to change. Like, we were constantly code switching just to feel safe in mm. front of an audience. So, when Merlin McCoo is responding about what it felt like to sort of be ostracized of not being black enough, I really identified with the, the stress that it is to even do your craft and not know who the audience is that you're going to meet out there. Will they be receptive? 
or will they not be? So when they were receptive, that really touched her. We were constantly being attacked because yeah. we weren't, quote unquote, black enough. Sometimes we and were even in watching it, the, the, the tears started seven. pouring. So that was a vulnerable moment that I'd, I didn't plan on having like that Barbara Walters, <laughs> make sure I ask a question that you cry over. Like it just instantly happened. That was one of the reasons why performing in Harlem was so important to us. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted our people to know what we were about. Mm-hmm. And we were hoping that they would receive us. Well, and like what was so beautiful to me in seeing that happen. So it's not mm-hmm. just the fifth dimension coming to do their big hit and the black crowd loves the song. Right. They bring members from the audience on stage and you see the members dance with these black boys and black girls. And it's just so beautiful. And it's, I don't know, it's. Yeah, I asked him, I said, well, two things I noticed here. One, I didn't know that Billy Davis Jr. had a gospel preacher's growl. Hey! All those things. <laughs> and two, like, you guys are doing modern dances. You're, you know, you guys are so poised and poshed and sophisticated when you're on Ed Sullivan, when you're on The Tonight Show. And, you know, finally they could just relax and be themselves. And that performance is night and day from any other performance. Now, in the case of Mavis Staples and uh, Mahalia Jackson, that's a moment that also wasn't planned. I found out later that a no-show to the festival was Aretha Franklin. Wait, stop. Oh, I got a lot of stories of no-shows and (laughs) and almost and shoulda, woulda, couldas. Um, Aretha Franklin was set to perform at the Harlem Cultural Festival and at the very last minute was kind of an 11th hour dropout. And just in a, a sort of a scramble moment, Tony Lawrence asked the staple singers if they could perform an additional week to sort of replace uh, Aretha Franklin. And so Mavis Staples, you know, I kind of, I'm I'm kind of glad that moment happened. I'm kind of glad that Mavis Staples got that moment. I'm very glad it happened. In the sun. <laughs> yeah. Take my hand. But yeah, there's uh, another story of, uh, you know, Slimus Family Stone wasn't scheduled to be on. And I found out that Jimi Hendrix had requested that was to perform as well. Yeah. Uh, and they said no. I don't know if he was declined because he was too radical or if it was his spacing. But Jimi Hendrix will actually wind up doing three after parties. So when the festival's over, Jimi will do three weeks of Harlem nightclubs with blues great Freddie King. And wow. the last... Where's that tape? Where's that tape? <laughs> I wish. There was one person that, like, documented the moment, but there's no tape of it. And the last Close But No Cigar moment was week number six. The production company that Hal Tolshin had hired gave him a note saying that we won't be able to shoot the last week of festivals, so you might want to readjust your lineup 
you know, they were saving like the big guns for the last week. And so they had to do a lot of scrambling to make sure that the first five weeks was action packed with the celebrities they wanted. And the last week would have been, quote, the throwaway week. And unfortunately, I mean, it's New York City, so you know someone's a star. That was an 18-year-old Luther Vandross's very first performance. What? That we didn't get a chance to. <laughs> what? Yeah, Luther Vandross performed the last week of uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival. What was he singing? This is before he's Luther. So he was part. Now, here's the irony of it. The irony is that the production company could not shoot the last week of performances because they had to shoot a pilot of a television show that Hal Tolson begged them, like, look, man, forget that show. We'll pay you more money. Uh, turns out that show is the pilot of a show called Sesame Street. Oh, my God. <laughs> Come on, children. Give us a hand. And what's, what's even weirder is that Luther Vandross and his group on, called Listen children. My Brother is actually on the pilot episode of that Sesame Street. What? Singing about the number 20. So all those people that are in 20 Feet from Stardom, all those greats that backed up Luther Vandross like Fonzie Thornton, they were all just a unit of New York singers from Harlem and Brooklyn that uh, formed a group called Listen My Brother. And, um, you know, for the next 10 years, they will be the go-to singers that you would use if you want background vocals. Wow. Just so happens that 15 years later, Luther Vandross winds up being a, getting out of the background singer mode and into his own stardom. But, wow. yeah, that, that, was, that was their debut. All right, coming up, why the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969 is actually timeless and still relevant today. You know, I think what I love most about the film and the soundtrack is how it speaks to all of the different kinds of blackness there were and are in the community. You have gospel artists and secular artists. You yes. have clean-cut artists and folks like Sly and his crew. You have different ages there's such a diversity in this concert itself. And this film is a reminder to viewers that the very idea of blackness and what it means to be black, it's always multifaceted and it's always changing. And there are always these tensions within and outside the community of defining it, you know? Yes. And yeah, we learned, wonder, we learned two years oh, ago ahead. that we're one of the most said statements I've heard in the election cycle and going forth is that we are not a monolith. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. not just one group of people through one filter. Like yeah. there's different facets and, and different chambers of our experience. And this film, I feel, captures it. Well, and it captures the way that those dialogues can happen in a nice way. <laughs> like everyone got along while having right. all these differences. I wonder though, in terms of this ongoing conversation about what it means to be black and how we negotiate that, what has changed in that conversation for you the most since Summer of Soul to let's say now? Well, okay. So I will say that time is probably, if you were to ask me like, who's the star of the film? I would say actual time is. Because first of all, you know, it's it's being captured in a paradigm shift moment where the civil rights is ending, 
and black power starting. And then at that, we can talk about Black Erasure and why did it take 50 years for this film to stumble out the gate. But even when we're crafting the film together, you know, I kind of had a different idea of what the film was going to be before March 16th of 2020. I think at the very beginning, maybe in 2017, 2018, I'm thinking, you know, just put 17 cool songs together and slap a tag on it. And then... Around 2019, we decided, like, okay, we should really give context. Like, like you're going to have to do some explaining on why these things are happening on stage. Because, you know, even myself, I was like, well, why don't I know about this festival? And then I want to know things about, like, what were travel arrangements like? And I want to know about, what was Stevie Wonder thinking at this moment? You know, what's Sly and the Family Stone thinking about this moment? Like, there's so many questions I had And then all that came to a screeching halt on March 16th of 2020 when the world sort of stopped and we had to start all over again. And in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, I don't know if we're going to reach Gen Z with this. Like anyone born after 1995, I don't know. Maybe this is, maybe this film is only for baby boomers and Generation X. And then the summer of 2020 happens. And then when George Floyd happens and when Breonna Taylor happens, and then when protest happens, and then when the coronavirus spreads, and then there's there's distrust of the government, and there's there's the election issues. All these things that were happening in 2020 were the same things that were happening back in 1969, you know, with the Nixon administration started to steepen. And suddenly I was like, wow, we don't have to call up Drake to ask him to talk about his uncle playing bass with Sly and the Family Stone. Like, Thank goodness. We, yeah, like, I don't, I don't have to pander and be like, hey, can you talk about your uncle Larry Graham real quick playing bass right here? Like, we don't have to do that because now I feel as though second-generation millennials and Gen Z currently living in the conditions that were the same exact parallel conditions 50 years ago. And so it's all about timing because – Again, if this film is done for the 50th anniversary in 1969, chances are it would just been a concert film with no context whatsoever. Did you expect the success for this film that it's received? You know, I'm going to tell you, for a lot of us, the pandemic was, if you don't decide to do personal growth, then the universe will decide for you. Putting this together really did a lot for me as a, as a human being in terms of of my confidence in being a storyteller, you know, a lot of things that I do creatively um, and a lot of things that artists do creatively, like, you know, it's often met with trepidation and sort of fear and, you know, am I, am I worthy to do this? Should I do this? I've, I've never done this before. Why would they trust me to do this? There's a lot of being dancing in my own head and swimming and talking myself out of a good thing that most artists do, because what if it doesn't work? What if I fail? Then I'll fail in front of people. I can't do that. So, you know, for me, yeah, I, I will say that this film really, really, you know, I was I was living very, very small, squishing myself and, and living in my smallness. And am I worthy? Am I worthy? And this film helped me to graduate that line to I am, you know. Yeah. When you're watching Jesse Jackson do these affirmations, <laughs> you can't help but rub off on you and that's the lesson that i learned from the film the fact that tony lawrence had a dream you know i'm gonna put this festival together and i'm gonna document this festival so i can show the world how beautiful black is oh happy day 
And that dream came true. It stumbled out the gate. But damn if it's not headed to the finish line and almost to the winner's circle. Like, this is the most beautiful story of the tortoise and the hare ever told. And, you know, now um, I'm ready. Thanks again to my guest, Questlove. The soundtrack to Summer of Soul is out now, and you can also check out the documentary on Hulu. I most highly recommend it. All right, this episode was produced by Danae West and edited by Jordana Hochman. And special, special thanks to Lars Gottrich over at NPR Music, who uh, brought this whole thing together. All right, listeners, don't forget, this Friday we are back with another episode, and we want to hear the best things that happened to you all week for that one. Just record yourself and email that file to me, samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, till Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs>